Welcome to the Healing Us podcast, your guide to unlocking the strength within. Are you ready to embark on a journey towards healing and well-being? The ultimate destination for mental health and addiction recovery awaits. We're talking stories of hope, different approaches to healing, and so much more. At Healing Us, we believe in the power of a connected community. Our facilities are located throughout New Jersey and Southwest Florida. We provide a long-term safe haven for anyone looking to achieve lifelong happiness. We invite you to join us, along with countless others, as we explore this journey together. Together, we can overcome any challenges and embrace a future filled with healing, hope, and happiness. Join us. We're here today with Kim Sacconi. Kim is an alumni of Relevance Behavioral Health. She was a patient back in 2018 and really found a journey to recovery that started um, at that facility, which is the Healing Us Center. Uh, from there, she went to CFC Loud and Clear Foundation, and she's been with us ever since. You've been there a long time. I didn't realize yeah. how long it's been. So, yeah, I was just joking about this with my friend the other day. I was like, I just like never, I never left. I'm just <laughs> still here, um, which I'm really blessed to be here. It's been like a really humbling experience for me, and um, the change throughout the years is insane. Yeah, and obviously, I mean, at this point, she's a jack of all trades, runs circles around CFC, is always doing everything for everybody and just amazing. So Thank we're you. super happy to have have Kim. Um, I'm going to let her share a little bit about her story and kind of how she got here. Um, she is a survivor of domestic abuse, recovery, um, some mental health challenges as well. So, you know, tell us a little bit about what brought you to our doors back in 2018. How'd you get there? Um, okay, so... The longest background that I can give you is I actually, um, I was born with cleft lip and palate, so I am a child of, I believe they call it, it's PMTS, so it's Pediatric Medical Trauma Stress or something like that, post-traumatic stress, basically, it falls into a PTSD category. Um, So I realized recently in one of my discoveries that that contributed to a lot of my life, so Um, My family, like I said, we were in and out of hospitals. I had 22 surgeries by the time I was 18. Um, I would be homeschooled for certain periods of time. It's really hard for me to fit in growing up. Um, I think seventh grade was like a pivotal time for my friendships. Um, I had a lot of girlfriends leading up to that. And then I think that's when I realized that people cared what other people thought about them, probably like around seventh grade. Um, Which is pretty common. I mean, I feel like for girls in general, middle school is brutal. Yeah. Let alone dealing with uh, surgeries that you had to go through and yeah, things like that. And then I think you noticed too, like, I think that's the first time I realized certain people are opportunists and like, you know, I wasn't fitting into the narrative of the things that they wanted in their life because I was so different, you know? So my relationships to people, um, it had to develop through time and it had to evolve. And I think that's something I realized recently through one of Dan's actual, um, the smart recovery meetings is, um, that I um, always was in the arms of everyone and I always had to trust everyone because I needed them medically. Um, So I never really understood boundaries or how to really, I guess, scale out as someone a good person or a bad person. So that led me a lot into everything as an adult. Um, I had a few like minor short relationships, like six months. I never touched anything major drug-wise besides marijuana and alcohol. Uh, Well, I drank for the first time when I was 18 um, and I smoked weed for the first time when I was 18. Um, And then 
I never touched anything but that until I was 26. And um, I had a friend who had introduced me to cocaine. And as I, I didn't say this earlier, but I'm adopted as well. My biological father is addicted to cocaine. So um, I touched cocaine. And then after that, I feel like it was kind of off to the races, but it wasn't necessarily a problem yet. I was probably just partying with a group of people that partied. Um, and then I met one bad boyfriend and um, I wound up moving to Perth Amboy. This was in 2017, I think, or it might've been 2018. I officially lived there, but 2017, I had uh, met him. Um, I would like to say he was probably a narcissistic person. Um, I have a lot of different thoughts about it. I try to make like conspiracy theories to understand him as a person. Um, but the point is, like, I really don't have to. Um, he was very um, abusive. Uh, he's perfect for the first three months, everything charming. Um, and then I actually had found out I was pregnant. And that was the first time that he had ever put his hands on me. Um, it, it's important to say, too, that both of his parents were doctors. His uh, father was an anesthesiologist who had initially got him um, hooked on Xanax. Um, and then his biological, or his mom um was like i think she's like a regular practicing doctor um but she was giving him ambien and lorazepam and adderall and then adderall scripts under uh his brother as well so um they were contributing a lot to like his use which later contributed obviously to my use right um prior to that like i said i never really touched anything besides at this point cocaine um, and then once I met him, it just started, things just started normalizing and I thought it was normal. Um, and then I started getting through the abuse. And obviously when, um, I found out I was pregnant, he had kicked me in the stomach. Um, and, uh, I just like realized I was probably going to die or the baby was going to die or my life was going to be like insufferable. Like if I kept attached to this person. So I made like a this is probably like that moral dilemma that people talk about. I was adopted. Um, my biological parents had given me the full opportunity to, or sorry, my mom, my biological mom have given me the full opportunity to have this chance at life. And then I have the same opportunity to do that for my child and do adoption. Mm-hmm. And I was so scared. And um, I had made the decision to go through with an abortion. Um, and uh when i sorry that's okay no it's a it's a lot to share and thank you for sharing that with us um especially i think you know people that are also adopted have deeper feelings when it comes to their own journey right their own pregnancies but you know obviously the situation you were in was really tough yeah um so he um Showed up to that appointment. I, I went through the abortion. They, at that time, did prescribe Percocet when you left. Um, he actually took one of mine, and then I guess had went to the streets to get more and gave me one. I, t- I remember taking it and feeling, like, less sad or, like, more numb. But, like, nothing major again. It was just, like, the one time. And then a month later when um, I had gotten my monthly visit, I had uh, severe cramps and I just asked him to break me off a piece of one. And he told me I couldn't unless I snorted it. And bringing it back, though, I mean, you were adopted, but your adopted parents, you were adopted into a beautiful family. Mm, yes. Of, of parents that, you know, loved you and, you know, still love you. They're very involved in your recovery. Mm-hmm. Your mom's going to be here in a little bit to speak as well. So, yeah, um, you know, 
just how quickly that journey you were you were raised by them yeah and and had a beautiful childhood dealt with a lot of stuff but how quickly meeting the wrong person really your turn you just completely yeah. turned upside down. no and you know what I think it happened prior to just him it was like a slow culmination of just like a storm forming and um I think that's how it happens for a lot of people like I had even recently saw a friend who he drinks, you know, and he's a normie um, and he randomly experiments with other stuff, too. But he recently lost his mom and I noticed him drinking a lot more. And I and I always tell people that, like, it just takes one bad event sometimes. And like, that's really my story. It was just one or maybe a few small events that led up to um, me winding up. Yeah. Can you tell the audience what a normie is? Oh, a normie. This is. was always my brother's a recovery. I am not. Um, you know, obviously, it's just a journey. But this, yeah, this term always cracked me up. So a normie <laughs> is just like a normal person that can go out and have a drink or or touch really anything, and they're not going to form any type of like bad pattern of behavior associated with it. And I think some people will like classify them as a normie because they think that they can but they're not necessarily normal totally and it's also like not to say that they're dealing with their issues in other ways yeah yeah but that that term always always cracks me (laughs) up so it's like a dictionary for recovery radio yes if you will um awesome so talk to us a little bit after after all that went down Um, how'd you oh so um actually my when I was very funny when I was in kindergarten uh one of my first best friends um was Nick Felicione. Oh, wow. Um, and so Nick Felicione, I, I wound up moving eventually to Farmingdale. I guess he was one of Nick's. Um, oh, my God. I can't speak right out. Dan's best friends. He was. Um, and I think that they had been in addiction together and stuff, too. Um, but my mom, when she realized that I had a problem, which was at my dad's birthday party, she saw me. I was so thin and she just knew something was wrong. She called um, her friend Gigi, who was Nick's mom. And she told her to go to the farm. And I think it was the Sunday meeting. James was running that meeting. Um, they were doing like the faith base. And my mom and dad ran in um, and they immediately got pulled into the office. Um, and an intervention was set up for the same day for me and my ex who was abusive towards me. Um, they offered help to both of us. My ex just didn't take it. Um, but we both got offered the opportunity to do detox and then treatment. Um, and I had no idea who anyone was. Um, we had the interventionist in the uh, room and he did a pretty good job at getting me to just agree. And I think at that point I was so out of my mind and I couldn't bear like hurting my mom anymore. So um, I went with them. And um, it's the best thing I ever did for my life to just like say yes to something for once that wasn't killing me, mm-hmm. you know? Totally. And I feel like you, you kind of have a unique story in the sense and everyone's different, right? Mm-hmm. For my brother, it took many turns, many tries and rehab, many yeah. different places. For you, you ended up at the farm and that was five years ago now. So, yeah. um, but you know, it was, you took it seriously. You, you did the work. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I think that, um, The process of recovery is like really incredible because I think to where I was when I first came in and we had to wind back to the fact that I actually wasn't, it's a democratic system. I wasn't voted into housing initially. I wound up being like an overrode vote and getting Right. So explain that for a second. So with sober living houses in New Jersey, actually the Oxford model, which is nationwide, there is a democratic process to that house. So every house has, you know, uh, 
a president, vice president, and there are people that have been in the house for, uh, you know, have a stable recovery for the most part, are controlling the atmosphere of the house, and they want to make sure that anybody that comes in is serious. Yeah. So you didn't you didn't get in the first time? No. <laughs> No, I didn't. Um, I was still with my abusive ex at the time. So um, obviously people saw that when they were considering me. Um, I also, not for nothing, was very hot-headed at that time. And like, if something made me mad, I I just like flip a switch. I don't think I've been angry in like two and a half years at this point, like that level. But like back then it was really um, hard for me to regulate like that fight or flight. Um, so I think it was hard for me to relate to people and hard for people to see me pass, um, the state I was in. Very understandably. So, you know, you went to, um, outpatient partial care at relevance, mental health and addiction. Um, then you came to CFC Mm -hmm. and then from there you just kind of blossomed over time as a member. I actually, it's funny when I first got here, um, Everybody wants to eventually at at the time, I felt like everybody wanted to do the house management and and they like thought they could do better than the next person or, you know, like people were really excited to like move up. And in my mind, I was a barber for 11 years. I was going to stay a barber. I had like no expectation to step out of that realm and work in this field. Um, And anyone that like really knows barbers, they have like the biggest egos ever. So like. I am, I have to say I fall into that too. I have a big ego in certain senses and mine's a little different than how you would normally, I think, process a big ego. Like mine's more so I think I could like help everybody and that's like an ego thing too. But um, I do think yeah, a lot of people that are in recovery fall, come back to work in the field. Yeah. But it's, you know, you got to balance that. Yeah. It's, it's got to be so scary. humbling. Yeah. That was what I loved. Like I was able to like really like harness like, the the best skills that are in me um and then kind of work through the parts like my flaws and everything um and sit in a more lower ground and a more relatable ground with other people in recovery instead of feeling like um I'm just in this like rat race of life and trying to like move up in this industry that just wasn't serving me as well I'd love to like share with you know our audience a little bit about some a topic that we want to talk about, and that's breaking the chains of addiction. Mm-hmm. We've got a new year upon us. We've got the holidays. Holidays yeah. are a really difficult time for for people in recovery, um, balancing family dynamics, balancing sobriety, mm-hmm. um, mental health, and the stresses of yeah. the holidays. So, talk to me a little bit about you know, um, kind of some some strategies you use to stay focused during the holidays, and then as well as how you keep the members and the community involved. Yeah. Um, so I think that the most important thing that I've learned through my recovery within this program um, is to just create your own system of things that you love and that you need in your life that work for you, like a little a la carte. Um, so for me, um, definitely keeping a system that works for me, which for me, I'm very creative. So I have to keep like creativity a big portion of my life. I have to make my work feel creative for me to like innovative Mm -hmm. for me to feel that I could keep motivated and keep going. Um, So I think really switching up your routine is important, but always keeping a routine is essential. Um, I think that just like um, with any shampoo line or skincare line, it's like a three month window before it stops doing what it initially started doing. And I think sometimes when you're hitting the exact same meetings and you're reading the same textbooks and you're doing everything the same, 
it's just going to work for you for that window of time. It's going to serve its purpose. But once it stops, instead of stopping your routine completely, start switching it up. So I'm kind of going into a new um, journey myself. Um, I have ADHD. I am finally working with psychiatrists and DBT therapists and trying to work through all of that. And I think in this new year, what's really important for me is being okay with being still, um, being okay with not making quick decisions, quick moves, impulsive things, um, not answering to every feeling and emotion that I have. I think harnessing the power of being still is one of the most it's so challenging. Like, yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so, so hard. It's so easy to just flip out when you're mad and someone's yeah. rude to you. It's so hard to just sit there and go, okay. Well, it's the pause in life. Yeah. And that pause, you know, uh, Dan, my brother, after he came out of rehab, that was one of his biggest lessons. Yeah. And he, he taught me about that because I'm like very impulsive too in my yeah. own ways. And he's like, this comes into play in business. It comes into play before you buy that item that you don't need. And it's that pause in life, that yeah. stillness that like you can regroup and actually think about an action you're about to make. Yeah. And I think that no, like being able to just harness that for me would be the most golden gift I could give myself in my life because I would be able to make better financial decisions. I would be better, uh, be able to make better relationships that aren't just so based off my emotion mm -hmm. um, and I would be able to just with myself be able to sit still with myself and realize wait why are you uncomfortable right now that you're sitting still in this moment you know like yeah so there's just a lot that I could see uh, for myself with that and I think that that's not something that you could do in your first three months of recovery I think sitting still is something that comes later I think you do have to harness a certain level of it all throughout your recovery and it gets stronger mm -hmm. but I think the first three months that's probably not going to be your main focus but at this point for me um I think sitting still and getting like a visualization like vision boards we're doing that actually for the new years that was a question so what are some common like you know Circle back to the, somebody that's still struggling yeah. at this time of year. What are some common like obstacles and challenges that they're facing coming yeah. into the holiday season, coming into the new year? So um, I think that obviously there's going to be a lot of triggers when it comes to family dynamics. Um, I think that everyone's family is very different. There's going to be some families that have very healthy dynamics and there's going to be some that are maybe a little more enmeshed or toxic or... Um, you know, you may have to be all over the place because your family is more split up. Um, so I think that those dynamics play a huge role in, um, or maybe you're making your own family too, right? Yeah, exactly. So I think it's like a, a matter of seeing what your dynamic looks like for that holiday and then really like doing a harm reduction for yourself. Like, is it my best case to go to Christmas at my parents this mm -hmm. year when I'm going to be super triggered because of good reason mm -hmm. or is it best that I spend time with my recovery family um, in my sober house or go to my roommate's um, family's function with him? What's going to be best for you? Yeah, I yeah. think like having to really look at that and just really like scaling out, I guess, like the risks mm -hmm. when you're... Um, and then I also think another part of the holiday season that's really hard for people, it's the weather. You know, in the summer, you get more vitamins naturally from the sun and the water and, and just being out and being more active. Um, and in the winter, people tend to stay inside where it's cold. Um, you don't want to go outside. You don't want to socialize. Isolation. Yeah. So the isolation is going to play a huge role in like your mental health and you're going to fall into the seasonal depression. So I think uh, the best advice I've ever heard is motivation is not going to come knocking at your door. You have to make it. You just have to make it happen because there's some days like um, especially too with all these different 
things I'm trying to work through. There's some days I wake up and I would love to just stay in bed all day. But we all have those days. Yeah. So what would you, you know, and that's where I think being part of like a community is super helpful. Because if yeah. you have, whether it's, you know, CFC meetings or uh, Hope Sheds Light down Tom's River, wherever you find your group, you know, short yeah, says, right. Um, you know, I think having that community, having somebody call you and be like, hey, are you coming to the meeting? Like that, that helps as well. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think that it's important to, um, I, there is, there was this one, um, psychiatrist that was expressing the life, um, what did he call it? The life, uh, oh my gosh. Um, I'll, I'll figure out what the word is, but it's basically a pyramid and it, and it says that if you start with your physical health and your physical body first, um, and that would be your sleep hygiene, that would be your exercise and like your diet. Mm -hmm. um, and if you start with that, you're already going to feel 70% better. So if you just have some type of routine of some type of physical health, it doesn't mean you have to go lift weights in the gym. It just means let me go for a walk around my neighborhood for 15 minutes mm -hmm. because that's physical activity. Um, and then that's going to instantly make you feel better. And then you have to get to the next section, which is your connection. And it's not about I have to have this whole big agenda with a million friends. It's I have to reach out to at least someone today and make a connection mm -hmm. when someone, whether or not they pick up the phone, doesn't matter because I did my part mm -hmm. as a human to reach out to another human. And then the last part is the work on yourself. And that's the hardest work. So that's why it's the top tier. But once mm -hmm. you've mastered the other two, you're already like so much better than where you started. I love that. So somebody who's, you know, in recovery and early recovery maybe is a couple years and mm -hmm. just needs to be reminded that it's a journey and you have to always evolve right yeah that's a great kind of pyramid to follow it's like yeah coming into the holidays you're stressed you're busy you're spending money you're dealing with family and events mm -hmm. physical health first always scheduling that gym time followed by by the other two and just making sure that that yeah. you know remains priority. you just have to keep them on like priority there's certain things that whether you're you think that they're going to be your savior. The truth is nothing's your savior, savior except for you. It's you creating that routine. You have to like, you have to do those things, whether you think you're getting stagnant in them, you have to do them because they make you feel better. Mm -hmm. They worked up until this point. It's just other things you have to switch around. Yeah. Um, so and another, I another interesting topic around like New Year and mm -hmm. the holidays. Um, and we see it all the time, right? A lot of people will not want to start their journey like, Oh, you know, I'll go to rehab after New Year's. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got, um, I want, you know, to, I've got plans on New Year's Eve. I've got events for Christmas. You know, I want to drink wine or whatever that may be. I'll go after the holidays. What What would you say to those people? Um, honestly, I'm like very big at looking at if they're in a solution based frame of mind. Um, and smart always teaches like the, the stages of change. So whether they're in the pre contemplation or contemplation, it sounds kind of like they're probably in the contemplation of I know this is an issue, but I'm going to wait till and um, I think that until the person comes to the full awareness themselves, you can't make anybody but I would say there's no point in holding off something tomorrow. If you really want something bigger, bad, if you really want to be happy, if you really want a million dollar enterprise, if you want these things, there's an algorithm to it. And if you don't start working in that algorithm, you can't be upset by the consequences of not getting the things that you thought you wanted so bad, you know, and, and I think that, and it's harsh. It's like a harsh way to put it. I probably would say it a little softer to somebody depending where they're at, but I think that when you really want something, 
you'll do it today, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important to know that in your mind that you could hold everything off. You could have tolerance for every moment of your life that you're not happy with. But if you're not willing to make the changes today, um, you're going to suffer ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that that's a a great point. You know, I understand everybody's different, right? And we're talking you're talking mostly about addiction, I guess, to that extent right now. But then yeah. mental health is a totally different. Oh, well, so mental health. Yeah, so mental health, I definitely, for someone that's holding off, I would just really say that, like, um, mental health, it's like a hole. It just gets deeper and deeper. Um, there's resources to get yourself out of that hole get harder. Um, and I think that when you have a resource in front of you that, you see and you know that you're struggling with something grab the resource before you're in this deep hole that's going to take a really long time to get out because sometimes when you start to catch these little symptoms you could sometimes just do therapy once a week and you don't even have to go all the way Mm -hmm. to an IOP because you caught it so early yeah and I think catching things early and being really um honest with yourself and others is going to help you ultimately like better yourself quicker yeah absolutely and you know, what is your opinion? Like, how does just having a positive mindset change everything we've just talked about? So in everything is perspective. Um, I have days for the most part, I'm pretty overall a very positive person. And I try to push my perspective on other people that are struggling with that, that mindset. Um, I think that the difference between someone that's sick and someone that's well, whether they're in recovery or not, is someone that it has a positive mind frame versus a um, negative mind frame. And I think that if you um, can't do it yet or you think you can't and you're struggling with it, it's, again, it's hard work. It's all work. So, like, for me, I have to constantly speak in present tense. When I say something negative about myself, I might sound crazy, but I'll be like, I I take that back. Like, (laughs) because I don't want to send it out to the universe that there's anything negative because I feel like, what you say, the verbiage out of your mouth, the thoughts in your head, and, and the way that you proceed forward is exactly what you're going to attract in your life. So to me, I'm like, keep that away from me. I don't want any of that. So the second my mind starts doing that, I like, I recognize it as like a little, like an old friend, mm-hmm. like an old familiar friend so that needs to go away. Yeah. And I do think that even gets easier because the more you train your mind to be positive, yeah, sure. that's a proven science. Yeah. You're automatically going to start looking at things half full. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, that that goes into a lot of our therapies, which we're going to talk on different episodes. A lot of our doctors are going to come in um, and just talk about that shift in that mental that mental health space. Yeah. 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 And affirmations too. affirmations and nothing else. Just remind yourself that um, you're strong, you're loved and you're safe. Yeah. You know, all the above. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kim. It was yeah. so great talking to you. Great to you. And I'm um, sure you'll be back. But yeah. we love you. And thank thanks you. for coming in today. Yeah.